Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is, I'm sorry, today is Saturday? No, I'm wrong. Today is Friday, December 25th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I must be somehow distracted. This evening, we are going to present, on the wisdom of Solomon, part 18 of our commentary on wisdom, and this is subtitled, similarly to last week, this is Lessons from History. In our commentary on Wisdom Chapter 11, titled The Wisdom in History, we hope to have illustrated not only how Solomon had deduced lessons from history which are not always obvious to the casual reader or observer, but also how his conclusions agreed with both the words of the prophets and those of the apostles of Christ. For example, in the last three verses of Wisdom chapter 11, we read, where Solomon is addressing Yahweh God himself, For thou lovest all things that are, and abhorrest nothing which thou hast made. For never wouldest thou have made anything if thou hast hated it. And how could anything have endured if it had not been thy will, or been preserved, if not called by thee? But thou sparest all, for they are thine, O Lord, O lover of souls. And of course, in Genesis chapter 1, everything which Yahweh made, he called good. And that's, that, that's an important and significant aspect of Scripture because there are things which appear later, much later in history, which are not good. So to that we compared the words of Isaiah, chapter 43. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. We also compared the words of Paul of Tarsus from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, which belong to God. Now we must ask, who was bought with a price? We find the answer to that question in Isaiah chapter 52, where it speaks of the children of Israel in captivity, and we read, For thus saith Yahweh, You have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. The children of Israel were bought with a price, which is the blood of Christ, by which they alone and only them, only they were redeemed. As Solomon wrote, Yahweh God loves everything which he had created, and they are his. But he created nothing corrupt, and nothing good can come from corruption, which is a lesson that we must learn from history. And Solomon explains it here as we proceed with chapter 12 of wisdom. The wisdom of Solomon, 
along with the Old and New Testament scriptures, all present a clear and consistent view of Yahweh's interaction in the world, both with and on behalf of the children of Israel. When we near the end of wisdom, we see that the children of Israel are the world, at least so far as the faith in Yahweh and the promises which he made to the ancients, which reveal his future plans for his creation. And that is also revealed in the closing chapters of his revelation. Now we shall commence with our commentary on chapter 12 of Wisdom. And in verse 1, this is probably the shortest verse in, in Wisdom. For thine incorruptible spirit is in all things. We read the word things in the King James Version. The form of the word for all here. Pasin is either neuter or masculine, but the verse which follows supplies the context and shows that here it should not be interpreted as a neuter noun, since Solomon is referring to people or men. Therefore, the word things, which was inferred by the translators of the King James Version, should be stricken out. It should be struck from the text. For thine incorruptible spirit is in all. And Solomon continues in verse 2. Therefore chastenest thou them. Chastise them. The all of verse 1. Chastise them by little and little that offend. And warnest or admonish them by putting them in remembrance wherein they have offended, that leaving their wickedness, they may believe on thee, O Lord. While in the first clause, the sense and context of the verb refers to chastisement, it is actually elenco or elenxo, which is to disgrace, censure, or reprove and also to convict or prove, among other possible interpretations. But to censure or reprove for sin is chastising one by the resulting punishment. The act of chastisement is not merely for punishment, but for the correction or reproval of those being chastised. So to reprove is one of the definitions of alenso. So we read in Proverbs chapter 13, which are evidently the words of David to a young Solomon, he that spareth the rod hates his son, but he that loves him chasteneth him betimes, meaning he that loves him chastises him at times when it's necessary. Sparing the rod, one hates his son, because spoiling him, the son does not learn discipline, and the son does not learn that there are consequences for wrongdoing. When the son matures and goes out into the world, he may bring with him the attitude that there are no consequences for wrongdoing and get himself into a heap of trouble as he was not properly instructed. 
So he who spares the rod hates his son. That's just one of the cruel facts of life. Observing children, and I myself have had six at one time. Observing children, it becomes apparent that they learn not by what parents say. Children do not learn by what you say. They learn by what you do. You could speak until you're blue in the face, but if you're a hypocrite and do something else, you smoke cigarettes and you tell your child about all the evils of smoking cigarettes and tell them not to smoke, they're going to smoke because you smoke. So that's just one example, and there's a lot more grievous sins in the world than smoking cigarettes. But your children are going to learn by what you do and not by what you say. That's just a fact of life. So it is also even with men, with grown men, as it was with the ancient children of Israel, that if they had learned merely by hearing the law, then perhaps they would not have sinned, and they would not have been sent into captivity. But they heard the law every Sabbath day, and they still sinned, and they went into captivity. Therefore, Paul of Tarsus wrote in Hebrews chapter 12, speaking of the relationship between Yahweh and Israel, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, punishment for correction, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had our father's of our flesh, which corrected us, meaning our earthly fathers, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? In other words, if you obey your earthly father, you should much rather obey your God. For they, meaning the earthly fathers, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. Sometimes daddy whooped your ass for nothing. But he, meaning God, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Yahweh chastens his sons for the purpose of correcting them. The children of Israel, upon entering the land of Canaan, began to commit, began to commit sins in which the Canaanites had long been engaged. So they were often chastised. But bastards are not chastened in the same manner or for the same purpose, as Solomon now goes on to describe. In verse 3 of Wisdom, chapter 12. For it was thy will, thy will, Solomon addressing Yahweh directly, because this is still a prayer. For it was thy will to destroy by the hands of our fathers, both those old inhabitants of thy holy land, 
whom thou hatest for doing most odious works of witchcrafts and wicked sacrifices. And where it says, and we'll stop there in mid-sentence, because it really is in mid-sentence, even though it's the end of verse 4. Where it says at the start of this verse, for it was thy will to destroy by the hands of our fathers. The Greek text for the clause does not appear until the end of verse 6. We saw that same phenomenon in Wisdom 11 last week, where the King James translators moved, lifted an, an entire clause and put it in another verse. I guess it, they thought it sounded better that way. Here the Greek text for that phrase, or that clause, I should say, doesn't appear in the Greek manuscripts until the end of verse 6. And at that point, we shall offer our own translation of all four verses, from verse 3 through verse 6. <clears throat> here Solomon, in verses 3 and 4, here Solomon is referencing the destruction <clears throat> of the ancient Canaanites by the hands of the Israelites from the time of Moses and Joshua. So it should be apparent that by saying all in the phrase thou sparest all at the end of chapter 11 that Solomon only intended to refer to all of Israel since he certainly could not have intended to include the Canaanites. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Yet even though it may be perceived in history that the Canaanites were bastards, or at least throughout centuries of mingling with Kenites, Rephaim, and other races of dubious origins. They had become bastards. Here, they are nevertheless condemned for their behavior. From the time of Cain, and down to the interactions of Christ with his Edomite adversaries. Bastards were challenged in Scripture to do good, yet they never did good, which serves as another example of the lessons which we should deduce from history. And, and this is actually a huge example. Bastards can never do good. Period. There are only a few mentions of sorcery or witchcraft relating to the Canaanites in the Old Testament, and few precise details of what practices these things had included. However, there certainly were reasons for the laws which prohibited such practices to ensure that they did not spread among the children of Israel. So we read in Exodus chapter 22, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And then in the very next verse it says, Whoever so, Whosoever lieth with a beast shall surely be put to death. There has to be some sort of connection there, in my opinion. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 18 we read, When thou art come into the land which Yahweh thy God gives thee, Thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone that makes his son or daughter to pass through the fire, or that uses divination. 
I could talk about how the ancient Greeks divined, but as far as the Hebrews are concerned, there just isn't a lot of information in Scripture. Perhaps the ancient Greeks, of course, because they were related to the Hebrews, if they weren't Hebrews themselves, got their divination rights from the Hebrews. They would cut open the they would cut open certain animals and and observe the liver and the kidneys and see spots on them or or something like that and see a bad omen or see no spots on them and see a good omen. Or they would watch for a bird, whether it flew from the right or from the left, and they would base their actions on, on those pagan practices. So, I, I mean, that's gleaned from works such as the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Tragic Poets. They're just aspects of divination, and I'm sure there were a lot more abominable practices than that. So, there shall not be found among you anyone that makes his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that uses divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard or a necromancer, someone who imagines to be speaking to the dead. For all that do these things are an abomination unto Yahweh. Because of these abominations, Yahweh thy God does drive them out, meaning the Canaanites were practicing all of these abominations, and probably many more. For all of these things that are an abomination unto Yahweh. Because of these abominations, Yahweh thy God shall drive them out from before thee. Thou shalt be perfect with Yahweh thy God. While the nature of some of these practices may be found in ancient literature, others describe things which are far more obscure. The Jews and their Kabbalah could never turn lead into gold or formulate the elixir of life things which they continue to seek after, even today. Solomon continues a description of the sins of Canaan. And also, those merciless murderers of children and devourers of man's flesh, and the feast of blood with their priests out of the midst of their idolatrous crew, and we'll offer our own translation and the parents that killed with their own hands souls destitute of help. As we have already explained, the clause in the English version at the beginning of verse 3 actually belongs here at the end of verse 6. So following the Greek text, we would translate these last four verses to read from verse 3. For even those ancient inhabitants of your holy land, being hated for practicing odious deeds of sorcery and unholy rites or rituals, if you will, <clears throat> being both unmerciful murderers of children and eating a meal of the organs of the flesh of men and blood in the midst of a company of initiates, initiates or mystics, if you will, people that partake in mystic rites, mystic rituals, and parents themselves killing the souls of the helpless, meaning the souls of their own children. You're, you determined to destroy, addressing Yahweh God, 
you determined to destroy by the hands of our fathers. While the Bible does not go into any of the gruesome details whereby the Canaanites and the Israelites who followed them had sacrificed their children to Moloch, we really aren't given the details and we really don't need them, I'm sure. But here Solomon informs us that the ancient Canaanites not only killed their own children in this manner, but also ate their organs and drank their blood in group rituals of initiates, or perhaps mystics, as the Greek word mustes may also have been translated, in reference to someone who participates in mystic rituals. The ancient Greeks had their mystery religions but very little is written about it. It wasn't permitted for initiates to write about them. And even Herodotus had admitted that in his histories, he described very vaguely some of the mystic rituals or, or mystic beliefs, but he said that he wasn't permitted to write about certain things. So he didn't. They probably would have lynched him. Today, the descendants of the ancient Canaanites, among which the most notable are the Jews, once again partake of and support these evil practices. They have also imposed some of them on the greater society and will force us all to partake in them if they can. But aside from all of the evidence of the blood libel ritual murders, where innocent children are killed and their flesh and blood are consumed, rituals have been, which have been conducted in Europe and elsewhere throughout history by the Jews, the more discreet method in which this is performed today is found in all of the byproducts of the abortion industry, where fetal blood, tissue, cells, organs, and even body parts are sold on commercial markets and used in products ranging from vaccines to cosmetics. Many other medical and supposedly therapeutic procedures or treatments are being developed from aborted fetal tissue. Before it all ends, it seems that the whole world will be eating their own children in previously unimaginable ways. I have a link to an academic document that details some of this as it was back in 2013 that I will include with this, with, with this posting of this podcast. It'll be found in the notes. Now, returning to Solomon, he summarizes why the Canaanites had been destroyed. That the land which thou esteemest above all other and, of course, the land of Canaan was promoted by Yahweh God to the Israelites of Scripture as a land of milk and honey. And that was the land. And, and the, I don't want to use the Jewish terminology, but the greater area which had been promised to Abraham. And the greater area that had been promised to Abraham included other Adamic peoples, so the Jewish terminology describing it is simply wrong. 
but it was perhaps six or eight times larger than the actual portion allotted to the tribes in the time of Joshua in Palestine. So that was the land. It was the land of milk and honey. And 3,500 years ago, it was obviously much more fertile and much more fruitful than it is today. So that the land which thou esteemest above all other might receive a worthy colony of God's children. That's verse 7 of Wisdom, chapter 12. Although it is later revealed in the Gospel of Luke that Adam was a son of God, in the Old Testament of all people, only the children of Israel were ever considered the children of Yahweh God. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 14, ye are the children of Yahweh your God. For thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God, and Yahweh has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Throughout the prophets and in diverse other scriptures, in the Psalms, in Isaiah especially, on many other occasions, the same children of Israel are considered the children or the sons and daughters of Yahweh, exclusive of all other people. However, now, and for an unexpected reason, as we shall see in verse 10, Solomon explains how and why not all of the Canaanites were immediately destroyed before the children of Israel. And in verse 8, he says, Nevertheless, even though thou sparest as men and did send wasps, forerunners of thine host, to destroy them little by little. And the, the archaic language is sometimes difficult. In Exodus chapter 23, in reference to the tribes of Canaan, we read a promise of their gradual destruction from verse 27. I will send my fear before thee and will destroy all of the people to whom thou shalt come. And I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. And I will send hornets or wasps before thee, which shall drive out the Hivite, or actually the Horite, as I would read the Hebrew, the Canaanite and the Hittite from before thee. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little and a little, I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. In the Septuagint, the word for hornet, spakia, is similar to the word spakes, which was translated as wasp here in wisdom. So we read in verse 9, Not that thou wast unable to bring the ungodly under the hand of the righteous in battle, or to destroy them at once with cruel beasts or with one rough or severe word. And here Solomon attests that Yahweh had the power to subject or destroy the Canaanites immediately, but purposely chose not to do so.
He continues the explanation as the chapter progresses. And now we're at verse 10. But executing thy judgments upon them, little by little, thou gavest them place of repentance. And we will talk about that at length here. Not being ignorant that they were a naughty generation, as the King James Version has it, and that their malice was bred in them, and that their cogitation would never be changed. Now, that phrase, naughty generation, ponera hey genesis, or genesis, is more accurately translated as a wicked race. Likewise, the clause, their malice was bred in them, may have also been rendered, their malice is natural to them. Where it says that their cogitation would never be changed, we would write more literally that their reasoning would not change forever. That's word for word from the Greek. Their reasoning would not change for the ages or forever. In other words, their reasoning cannot possibly ever change because they were a corrupted or wicked race. And for that reason, their wicked behavior was an inherent part of their character. They had no choice but to be wicked. That Greek word, genesis or genesis, describes a source or origin, or speaking of people, a manner of birth, a race, or a descent, according to Liddell and Scott. And I only say Genesis because that's the popular pronunciation of the term referring to that first book of the Bible. If this race of people had a wicked genesis, then their origin is not found in that first book of the Bible, because everything that God created is good. The Canaanites had a wicked origin, in spite of the fact that everything which Yahweh God created is good. But a study of Old Testament history and the practices of the people of Canaan reveals that they were indeed mixed with Canaanites, Rephaim, and the origin of the Rephaim or the Nephilim. The Rephaim were a portion of the Nephilim or fallen ones. Their origin is not found in the book of Genesis. They are just there. Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days. There's no explanation previous to that as to where those Nephilim, the word translated giants in that passage, had come from. If their origin isn't in Genesis, their origin must be wicked because everything God created was good. The Canaanites were mixed with the Kenites, the Rephaim, who were from the Nephilim, and other tribes of obscure origin, which did not come from Adam. So, being bastards, because Canaan was a son of Ham, they certainly did have a wicked origin, as they did not come from God. God did not create bastards. Now, here Solomon imagines that the Canaanites were given room for repentance when in fact 
the scripture states that Yahweh preserved them after the children of Israel failed to obey him and destroy them all, and that their preservation would be a scourge, pricks and thorns to the children of Israel. So they were preserved not for their own benefit, but so that Yahweh would use them to chastise Israel. The children of Israel were warned many times not to worship or respect the gods of Canaan. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, And it shall be, if thou do at all forget Yahweh thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. An aspect of life that Christians today certainly don't understand is it to, to respect alien people, to respect people other than ourselves. We're also respecting their gods. We may be too dumbed down to realize that, but when you respect somebody of another race, whether he be black, yellow, brown, or red, you're also respecting his gods. This warning in Deuteronomy chapter 8, even Solomon himself was warned of this, as we read in 1 Kings chapter 9. But if you shall at all turn from following me, this is the words of Yahweh directly to Solomon, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then will I cut off Israel from out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name. Will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. So rather than turning the Canaanites away from their evil ways, the Israelites did indeed forsake Yahweh and turn to worship the gods and partake in the evils of Canaan. Then later, even Solomon himself committed that same sin. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, Of the nations concerning which Yahweh said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go in unto them, neither shall they come in unto you. For surely they will turn away your heart, after their gods, Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with Yahweh his God, as was the heart of his father David. So even with all of his wisdom, Solomon himself was corrupted by his power and later made a defense of himself in Ecclesiastes, where he seems to have repented. But of course, the final judgment of that is in the hands of God. Today, as Christendom is overrun with aliens, once again we see that a great number of the children of Israel have taken to worshiping the gods of the aliens. And that is also a lesson we must learn from history. Because while we cannot stop it, we may certainly be aware of what is happening and hope that we ourselves may be spared the coming judgment. 
white Christians had sought to turn the heathen races among them into Christianity for 500 years, and they have failed. Now, instead, many white Christians or former Christians have learned and follow the way of the heathen, just as their ancestors had done in the land of Canaan. So once again, all flesh is becoming corrupted as it was in the days of Noah, and Christ had warned that it would be at the time of his coming. Likewise, in spite of his motives for, for presenting this history in this manner, the lesson from history, which Solomon is illustrating here, is the fact that even living in proximity of the children of Israel for many centuries, the Canaanites failed to depart from their wicked ways and seek to do good. The delay in their destruction evidently afforded them the opportunity to consider the judgment which came upon many of the other tribes of Canaan and perhaps even a chance to change. But Solomon also attests here that they were a wicked race and that it is for that reason that they could not change. So even if Solomon omitted aspects of the relationship in the history between the Canaanites and the Israelites in his illustration here, he apparently did that purposefully so that he could better illustrate this important lesson from history, that behavior, good or evil, must be attributed to nature as well as to nurture. Solomon continues that affirmation in verse 11, which follows, which we won't quite get to yet. Returning to the concept of bastards being given the opportunity to repent. In Genesis chapter 4, even Cain is given such an opportunity. And after his sacrifice was rejected, we read, And Yahweh said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Cain immediately went and killed his brother, demonstrating that he could not do well because sin lieth at the door. An understanding of the parable of Genesis chapter 3 and the realization that there is a corruption in the text of Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 lead to the conclusion that Cain could not escape the evil of his behavior because evil was inherent in him as he was also a bastard. Sin lieth at the door. Sin is how you came into the world. In this same manner, John the Baptist addressed the leaders of the Judeans as a race of vipers or serpents in Matthew chapter 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation or race, O race of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. 
John the Baptist challenging Edomite Jews to repent when he knew they couldn't possibly repent. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. At least many of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the high priests of the Judeans, being Edomites, they were also descended from Cain and the races of Canaan. Being Edomites made them descendants of Abraham in part. But where John said, God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham, that would not make the children of stones children of the promises. Only the children of Israel were assured the promises of Abraham, as we read in Genesis chapter 28 and in Romans chapter 9. But nevertheless, John challenged them to do good, and they could not do good because of their nature, as Christ told them on frequent occasions later in his gospel. Another example of a bastard being challenged to do good is where Herod Agrippa II admitted that Paul of Tarsus nearly persuaded him to convert to Christ. When Paul challenged him, Agrippa eluded the challenge, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 26, the typical slimy serpent. <laughs> slimy serpent. Paul certainly must have known that Agrippa was an Edomite, but challenged him to do good in spite of that. Later, in the words of Christ in the Revelation, even Jezebel is described as having been given place to repent, and evidently she failed to do so. She was guilty of the same crimes of the ancient Canaanites, as we read in 2 Kings chapter 9, where Jehu confronted Joram, king of Israel, who was the son of Ahab and Jezebel. And it came to pass, when Joram saw Jehu, that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace? So long as the whoredoms of thy mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. So Jehu slew Joram, or Jehoram, and became king in his place, as Jezebel was eaten by dogs. It is arguable whether Jezebel was a Canaanite or whether she was a pagan Israelite. Her father, Ethbal, or Ithobalus, was a pagan priest of Tyre who had usurped the throne of Hiram held by his descendants. And killing them, he made himself king. The portions of the account which are not evident in Scripture are found in Josephus's work against Appion. Later, Ethbal married his daughter to Ahab, king of Israel, married his daughter Jezebel to Ahab, king of Israel. However, in any event, the lesson from history is the same, that a bastard cannot do good. So Christ promises in that chapter of the Revelation to kill the children of fornicators with death. Now Solomon speaks again in reference to the Canaanites, and he says in verse 11, For it was a cursed seed from the beginning. Neither did thou, for fear of any man, give them pardon for those things 
wherein they sinned. And that verb translated as fear here, eulabeomahi, would have been better rendered as care or respect. And it is a present participle verb rather than a verb of the second person. The words any man come from a form of an indefinite pronoun, tis, which means anyone. Therefore, the second clause should be read, neither caring for anyone did you give pardon for those things in which they sinned. The phrase translated as from the beginning here is aparches, and it does not necessarily refer to origin or race as the word Genesis does in verse 10. While Canaan was cursed by Noah, that alone cannot be what Solomon refers to here, as he had already professed in verse 10 that the Canaanites were a wicked race and that their evil was inherent. The curse of Canaan had nothing to do with any of this, as we read in Genesis chapter 9. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh, God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Being fated to servitude, that does not in itself make Canaan and his descendants a wicked race with an evil nature. Even the children of Israel were consigned by Yahweh God to slavery in Egypt, as Yahweh told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. But that did not make them inherently evil. However, the Canaanites, having later mingled with the Kenites, Rephaim, and other races, being bastards then, by nature they would be wicked, as Solomon has already explained here. The children of Israel may also be wicked, but they were not bastards, and they were given the law under which they could be chastised to repentance. So we see that neither nature or nurture are sufficient by themselves to please God. But having both nature and nurture, which is discipline under the law, the children of Israel can be acceptable to God. This is the lesson which Solomon wanted his readers to learn from this history. Now he continues to another, which in, with another, which is in reference to the judgment of God in verse 12 of Wisdom chapter 12. For who shall say, what hast thou done? Or who shall withstand thy judgment? And this next verse, I'm going to have an issue with this next clause. Or who shall accuse thee for the nations that perish, whom thou made? Or who shall come to stand against thee to be revenged for the unrighteous men? The words to be revenged are actually an adjective, ekdikas. And being used as a substantive means an avenger. 
So the final clause, we prefer to read, or who shall come to stand against thee, an avenger for unrighteous men? So in other words, there is going to be no avenger for the Canaanites who shall stand against Yahweh. But here we have another more significant issue with the translation that we would prefer to correct before commenting further. First, the Greek verb poieo can mean to do or to make. And the clause which reads, or who shall accuse thee for the nations that perish, whom thou made. The phrase ethnon apololaton, or the destroyed nations, the nations being destroyed, is in the genitive case. And they are not described with the words heisu epoiesas. Epoiesas is a, an aorist form of the verb poieo. And heisu epoiesas is translated here as which you have made. And with that, I severely disagree. Rather, we would more properly read the accusative case pronoun which is a neuter form of the relative pronoun hosts, as the object of the verb poieo, and that is natural in, in Greek, that the accusative case noun or pronoun is the object of the verb. If the relative pronoun did refer to the destroyed, na destroyed nations, it also should have been in the genitive case. So the clause should read, and who shall accuse you concerning the nations having been destroyed for the things which you have done? So it's not whom thou made. It's for the things which you have done. It's a neuter pronoun that's the object of the verb poieo, which means to do or to make. For the things which you have done. That's how the passage should be read. Even if Yahweh God could be credited with having created Canaan, Midian, Moab, Ammon, and other Adamic patriarchs of those tribes which were conquered or destroyed by the ancient Israelites, Yahweh did not create any bastards. Or Solomon could not have righteously referred to the Canaanites of later times as an inherently evil and wicked race earlier in this chapter in verse 10. Nothing created in the Genesis creation of God is evil. Yet Solomon refers to the Genesis, small g Genesis, of these wicked Canaanite nations distinctly as being evil. Now, if they were beyond chastisement, as Solomon attested here, and instead had to be completely destroyed for their wickedness, as Solomon attested here. Neither could they be among the all for which God cares. And in verse 13, he says, For neither is there any God but thou, or but you, that careth for all, to whom thou mightest show that thy judgment is not unright, 
And that language is a little difficult. I would rather translate this verse to read, For neither is there a God except you, in whom is care for all, in order that you would show that you have not judged unrighteously. Once again, the care is for all of Israel who should have learned and who should still learn this lesson from history, that Yahweh God had destroyed the Canaanites for their wicked deeds, and that doing so, his judgment is just. Instead, Christians today believe that the God of the Old Testament was a cruel and evil God, but that he has now passed judgment onto his son, Jesus, whom they think loves everyone regardless of their behavior. Jesus is some hippie, soy boy, faggot who just can't help but love everybody, no matter what color or, or what wicked practice they regularly partake of. Yet that same Jesus promised to kill their children for their fornication and to destroy entire nations of people described as goats sending them into a lake of fire. Solomon continues his analogy. Neither shall king or tyrant be able to set his face against thee for any whom thou hast punished. In essence, Solomon is merely declaring that no man can withstand the judgment of God. Judgment being in the hands of Christ we read in a messianic prophecy, a prophecy of Christ, in Isaiah chapter 52, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, and he shall be exalted and extolled, and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, they won't have anything to say in response, according to Isaiah and according to Solomon here. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard they shall consider. They shall learn from the lessons of history. They shall learn from the judgments of God. Sooner or later, it's going to happen. <laughs> it's probably going to be later. So we proceed with verse 15 of Wisdom chapter 12. For so much then, as thou art righteous thyself, thou orderest all things righteously, thinking it not agreeable with thy power to condemn him that has not deserved to be punished. And in other words, the nations of Canaan being destroyed certainly did deserve to be punished in the manner in which they suffered. But this leads to another question, which is sometimes a cause of contention even among those who share our understanding of Christian Israel identity. In 1 John chapter 3, we read from verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And of course, this statement is true. But it often leads to the oversimplified notion that only the children of Israel can sin because only the children of Israel had the law. 
we had probably all made that argument at one time or another for the sake of showing that Christ had come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel and that their sins are the only sins which he came to forgive. And that is true, but the argument is oversimplified. Paul of Tarsus had said that for until the law, sin was in the world, so you can sin outside the law, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them, that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. So, if the Canaanites were punished, does that mean that sin was imputed when Paul said sin is not imputed where there is no law? The truth is that there was one law given to man, for which reason Paul referred to the similitude of Adam's transgression. And that is the law, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which if a man did, he would die. The events described in Genesis chapters 3 and 6 both led to death. They both led to death, and therefore it is evident that both transgressions were violations of that same law. The Canaanites, having been mixed with Kenites, Rephaim, and others, were themselves products of the violation of that same law, being a race of wicked origin, as Solomon attests. They were bastards, and therefore they themselves were sin. In that manner, we can determine that the judgment of God is just. So Solomon continues to speak of his power, the power of God. For thy power is the beginning of righteousness, and because thou art Lord of all, it maketh thee to be gracious unto all. The Greek word phytomahi, translated as gracious here, would have better been translated as sparing or merciful. But once again, Yahweh demanding that the children of Israel slay all of the Canaanites without exception and informing them that he would ultimately slay them all if they failed. He was not sparing to them, and Solomon did not include them where he referred to all. Rather, Solomon was only referring to all of Israel. In that same manner, it speaks of the judgment of God in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Yahweh killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. Yahweh maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's and he has set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven he shall thunder upon them. 
Yahweh shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength to his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. But now Solomon describes the fate of men who forget God. For when men will not believe that thou art of a full power, thou showest thy strength, and among them that know that know it, thou makest their boldness manifest. And I would prefer to translate that verse for myself. For you show the unbelieving strength in the perfection of power. And among those who know, you reprove boldness. Those who don't know remain ignorant to the judgment of God. As we believe that Solomon is explaining, the Canaanites, who were granted a respite in their destruction, had an opportunity to reflect on what was happening. But nevertheless, they did not depart from their wickedness. And being a corrupt race, they could not depart. So in their destruction, Yahweh God shows his power to those who know, to the children of Israel who believed him and therefore knew what was happening as they learned a lesson from history as it was made. So Solomon continues in verse 18. But thou, mastering thy power, judges with equity, and orders us with great favor, for thou mayest use power when thou wilt. And the object of the verb is the genitive form of the noun iscus, which is strength or power. Solomon is not saying that God mastered his power, but that God is the master of power. With other minor differences, we would translate the same verse to read, but you, being master of power, judge with equity and govern us with much consideration, for it is present within you to prevail whenever you would desire. Now Solomon goes on to repeat his assertion concerning the opportunity for repentance of those Canaanites who were not immediately destroyed. In verse 19, but by such works hast thou taught thy people that the just man should be merciful and has made thy children to be of a good hope that thou givest repentance for sins. And of course, even the will or desire to repent of sin comes from God. God chooses who's going to repent of sin and who's not going to repent of sin and thereby be destroyed. Esau did not repent of his sin. Esau saw that his father was unhappy with his Hittite wives. So Esau did not stop there and say, Dad, who do you want me to marry? Instead, he thought he'd make his own decision again and go out and get himself an Ishmaelite wife. And he didn't do himself any good doing that. We will translate this verse 19 anew, even if the reading in the King James Version is acceptable. But teaching your people through such works, that it is necessary for the just man to be benevolent 
and that word is philanthropus, which is literally loving mankind, as in loving one's neighbor. You have also made your sons hopeful that you would give repentance for sins. Now, this also seems to be the case in the interaction between Christ. This example seems to be the case. This example of the first portion of this passage seems to be the case in the interaction between Christ and the Canaanite woman of Matthew chapter 15. However, it is more certain that he was honoring the Greco-Roman custom of the suppliant. But that is quite similar to Solomon's message here. Just because the punishment on the Canaanites is forestalled does not mean that ultimately it is not certain as Solomon also teaches here, that in the end they shall never repent because they are a corrupt race from the beginning. Yet the lesson which he wants us to learn from this history is that if Yahweh God gives those of his enemies who cannot possibly repent, if he gives them a chance to repent, then the children of Israel can be assured that they themselves certainly will be afforded ample space to repent. And in that manner, he continues, For if thou didst punish the enemies of thy children, meaning the Canaanites, and the condemned to death with such deliberation, giving them time and place. Now, the condemned to death is actually a parallelism there with the enemies of thy children, that they were all condemned to death, that all of the enemies of the children of Israel were condemned to death by God, even if they're not dead yet. They're condemned to death. Every Jew is a walking dead sentence. Every Arab and every other enemy of the children of Israel is walking this earth under a death sentence. Satan knows that he has but a little time for if thou did punish the enemies of thy children and be condemned to death with such deliberation, giving them time and place whereby they might be delivered from their malice. And I will stop mid-sentence because the end of the verse is mid-sentence. It finishes in verse 21 with a question. While the King James rendering is once again acceptable, a word was either missing or ignored. For if the enemies of your children and those who are liable to death you have punished with so much attention and deliberation, having given time and place by which they may depart from their wickedness, and I will stop mid-sentence again because the thought is finished in verse 21, and say that once again, while it is not explained in this manner in the books of Moses or in the later historical books of our Bible, Solomon uses the circumstances of the history of the Canaanites to show that they had ample opportunity to turn to good, although it was inevitable that they would not. Yet having had that opportunity, should their having had that opportunity 
should be a sign of encouragement for the children of Israel. And in that manner, Solomon concludes his sentence in verse 20. With how great circumspection did thou judge thine own sons, unto whose fathers thou hast sworn, and made covenants of good promises. And the word translated as circumspection here, circumspection is acrobia, which is actually exactness or precision. Here we may also observe that the children of Israel were called thine own sons, Solomon continuing his prayer to Yahweh God for wisdom, where it is apparent that their enemies, namely the Canaanites, were not considered to be children of God. Adam being a son of God, it is apparent in Genesis that not all men came from Adam, and therefore men who are not from Adam cannot be sons of God. For that same reason, the insistence of the Canaanite woman had vexed the apostles, who were trying to chase her away. Yet her wish was granted after she made supplication to Christ and admitted that she herself was nothing but a dog. After she went her way, as he instructed her to do, she was still a dog in spite of the fact that her request was granted, and the apostles were never reproved for how they had treated her. They, too, must have known that she was not a daughter of Yahweh, just as we see the attitude of Solomon towards the Canaanites here. They are contrasted to the children of God. Now, Someone continues by comparing the judgments upon Israel with the judgments upon their enemies and repeats the lesson which they have understood from their own, which they should have understood, which they should have learned from their own immediate history in verse 22. Therefore, whereas thou dost chasten us, Thou scourgest our enemies a thousand times more. Actually, it only says a thousand in Greek, but the implication is a thousand times more. To the intent that when we judge, we should carefully think of thy goodness, and when we ourselves are judged, we should look for mercy. With their own promises of preservation and a concurrent promise that all of their enemies would be destroyed. The Israelites should expect mercy first in the fact that Yahweh deliberated before destroying their enemies, and then in the fact that their enemies suffered even more than the children of Israel whenever the children of Israel were punished. But at the same time, the Israelites themselves should practice that same goodness and deliberation when it befalls them to have to judge others. All of these lessons Solomon takes from the history of the children of Israel in the presence of the Canaanites. But now he offers another lesson from that history in verse 23. Wherefore, 
Whereas men have lived dissolutely and unrighteously, thou hast tormented them with their own abominations. That word translated as dissolutely is aphrosune, which is basically foolishness or folly. Throughout wisdom, as well as Ecclesiastes, Solomon imagined folly to be disobedience to Yahweh God and his laws. Even when he partook in that himself, he called it folly. While wisdom is what comes from God, including his law. As for men being tormented with their own abominations, Paul of Tarsus taught much the same thing in Romans chapter 1 where he explained that the sodomy being practiced by the Romans of his time was itself a punishment from God, and that they were actually being shamed by such practices, even though they themselves didn't know it yet. They didn't know it yet. They will know it sooner or later. So he wrote in part, that for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women, this is God giving them up. So when you see a lesbian today, you can think that this is what has happened to her. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of a woman, burned in their lust toward one another. So when you see a sodomite today, this is the reason God already gave them up to that sin because of their other sins, because of their abandoning him or not caring for him, as Paul explained, or changing the truth of God into lies, as Paul explained earlier in that chapter. When you see a sodomite, being a sodomite is punishment. Men working with men, that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meet or fitting. We see this phenomenon once again today, where people are literally eating children, and all of the sodomites living in disgrace are receiving a reward for their sin by doing so where in the end, they will also be tormented with their abominations. May their judgment come swiftly. We're almost through Wisdom chapter 12. We shall leave off at this point in Wisdom chapter 12 with just a few verses remaining as Solomon turns to discuss the idolatry of Canaan, and that remains the subject of his discussion in chapter 13. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night.